Christy Patton Koenig is an occupational therapist with a PhD in educational psychology and another string of letters after her name, which I'm pretty sure connect her to the Illuminati. But I didn't ask. From her bio, she examines the efficacy of interventions utilized in public schools for children and adolescents with autism spectrum disorders. She's the department chair for occupational therapy at New York University. And if you link to her resume from the department's website, I shit you not, it's 25 pages long. Dr. Wendy Martin leads research that deepens understanding of how key components of educational programs influence effectiveness and participant experience with the prominent research group Education Development Center, or EDC. I feel lucky to know Wendy through other research projects, and when she told me about the project you're about to hear about, I begged her to spend some time with us, like a virtual email groveling. We're talking today about a project that they collaborate on. It's about maker education and autism. Before we get to the conversation, I have a regular listener that says he's interested to hear from each episode more about what we do about these problems. I'm testing a little segment in this episode dedicated exactly to that. Before we get started, here are five action items that I took away. I hope that by the end, you'll have your own to add to this list. So number one, reframe failure. Whether you have children or not, if you work in any capacity supporting learners, go and buy Andrea Beatty and David Roberts's Rosie Revere Engineer. It's a book. And if by the end of the book, you don't understand why the letter grade F is the most important paradigm around which we need to reprogram assessment and the ways we support learners, then I don't know what will. Number two, before setting out, analyze closely what parts of your approach might be supporting a deficit model. Are you emphasizing or punishing bugs in your programming? Or are you assuming that where there are bugs, there are features, ones that might help us realize better ways of approaching areas that need more support? Number three, maker education is not job training in the way we think of it historically. It's easy to get wrapped up in maker ed as a means of training workers for a factory of ideas and innovation. Pathways to the Bell Labs and Xerox Park and Google and Boston Dynamics fill in the blank. And for a few, it will be. But for many others, it's necessary training for a world in which they participate in any discipline. It's training for design thinking. It's training for resilience. It's training for the entrepreneurial spirit. It's technical training in concepts that will apply no matter what they do. And it's maybe most importantly, training to see their ideas and passions as connected to the world, to the subjects we've previously broken apart, to know the world and the disciplines that help us make meaning of it, as connected through their creativity and persistence in testing ideas. Number four, all students means all students. Inclusion is not about students earning their way to the privilege of learning alongside typically developing peers. It's about equity. It's about everyone belonging. Why it's important to broaden participation in STEM is that we tend to see that idea play out in other areas outside of special education environments. STEM for a long time, once you hit a certain point, has been about earning your way into the club. And what we learn from special education is that this principle is flawed. When everyone belongs, everyone benefits. This doesn't mean that students who accelerate don't have a place of their own. It means that we miss fewer of the minds who accelerate in ways that we don't recognize as readily because they're not like us. And last, number five, 
Neurodiversity is required in the digital age. If you're operating with the idea that humans who succeed in the digital age look one way, you're doing it wrong. Go back, remember why education first moved to clusters of desks over individuals in rows, and that the point is not to homogenize the learners. It's an appreciation of learners, like everything in nature, being symbiotic in the ways they connect, not the same. In a follow-up episode, I'm going to talk more with the trainer and maker educator from New York Hall of Science mentioned in this conversation, more deeply about the nuts and bolts of how the project is being conducted. I hope you'll check out that episode with the one and only Dave Wells. Enjoy this conversation with Wendy and Christy. This is no such thing. Podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. Bad bucket drums. Bad, bad bucket. <laughs> yeah, uh, bad steel drums are kind of like more sad than anything. Like it doesn't, exactly. it doesn't anger me, but it makes me a little sad. Yeah, it's a little. It is a little sad. <laughs> um, so <laughs> okay, it's a hard place to transition from. Guys, thank you so much for doing this. I am so excited to have uh, this conversation. Christy, I actually want to start with a question for you. Um, And it's about occupational therapy. Mm -hmm. And um, I believe it or not, you may get this a lot. People don't know what occupational therapy is. And I feel like it's really critical to understand uh, why you're such a huge part of this project and this conversation to know what occupational therapy is. It may also be a good way uh, to understand um, your entry point to this project. Uh, That is a question we get all the time. Um, We actually just had a conversation with that with some colleagues about, you know, we talk about occupational therapy. People think, oh, you find people jobs. And my answer to always is, yes, we can and help you enter the workforce and gain skills necessary to work. But really, when you think about occupations, you think about the things that you do a, every day that you have to do, or B, that things that you do that give your life meaning. So things that you're very interested in, your high interest areas, for example, we would say are your most meaningful occupations. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a hard word to wrap your head around because it's so associated with jobs and working, but at the same time, you look at students and what is their primary occupation? Their primary occupation is to engage in the learning processes that are going on around them and to be able to benefit from being um, in different settings where they can learn as much as possible and not have any barriers to that learning. So as occupational therapists, we really look at what are the areas that we can focus on to really help that student succeed in their occupation of being a student. Mm. So for this project, I'm a principal investigator of the NYU ASD Nest Support Project, and we support the New York City Department of Education's ASD Nest program. And that is the largest inclusion program in the country actually for students that are autistic we have about 1400 students that are autistic in learning in inclusive settings in about 45 schools alongside about 5,000 of their typically developing peers so 
as someone that oversees that program, um, when this opportunity came and I started to work with Wendy Martin, who's sitting next to me, um, it was just a natural, natural connection because we're very interested as part of the ASD Nest support project of really leveraging student interest and really looking at how can we leverage student interest for, um, learning potential pathways, potential careers, you know, um, going back to that word occupation, but how can we leverage their interest? And we know that our students um, that are autistic have high high interest in the STEM fields, Um, whether it's making, 3D printing, robotics. There's a high interest level there already and very few opportunities um, to do these things as part of a club based activity. Um, So so I was very interested because I'm always very interested in anything that can really focus on a student that is autistic strengths. Um, we have a real deficit paradigm that really, really focuses on the things that they do wrong or unable to do. And we have to stop that wholesale, stop it because you and I did not build our lives on our remediated weaknesses. So how can we really, um, include more kids that are autistic in these meaningful activities that could really facilitate their, their development, but by using their strengths. Mm. So that's kind of how I got involved in what occupational therapy is. And if these kids go on to have careers in STEM, then I truly have been an occupational therapist and found them jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> is, I guess the best way to look at it. Yeah. Um, I want to come back to that because I'm, I'm curious. Uh, to, uh, I, I'll ask now and then maybe we can talk about mm-hmm. uh, when we're further down the road in this conversation. But I'm curious about the outcomes that you think are important regardless of whether uh, students are on a STEM uh, pathway or not Um, and what kinds of things uh, both that you went into the project expecting and then what things did you come out uh, surprised by? Well, I think um, I went into the project expecting, I guess, and hoping, expecting and hoping that um, we were right about this, where if you really do something that leverages interest and whatever those interests are, you're going to get a very successful project and you're going to get kids that are that are happy and really able to focus on things that they do well versus focusing on things that they can't do. So um, that was my expectation. And we saw that. Mm -hmm. We definitely saw that. I think one of the things that, um, you know, and I think that's a good outcome for, for any project, whether it's maker, STEM, et cetera, you know, a sense of belonging and that you have the ability to engage in something that you care about and get support and establish connections through that. That to me is a wonderful out- outcome and yeah. have some sense of self-efficacy about it, that this is a place where that you can go and be your authentic self, but then also do really well. And for a lot of autistic students, they don't have spaces to do that. So I think on that level, as someone that has worked in the field of autism for over 30 years, that I was very hoping for, expecting, and I think we saw that Mm. in many ways. Mm. Uh, Surprise, I think the level of social interaction and social engagement um, that we saw, you know, in in ways that, so so for often these kids um, have difficulty with social communication and have difficulty just in that conversational interaction. And I think the medium that was used in these clubs helped produce um, just a feeling of ownership. And this is what I'm interested in. And because we let them go with their interests and it was very um, less structured and they're so used to the structured 
form of special education that you saw such beautiful conversations, mm. both on target, which is great, but I tended to prefer the off-target conversations when people were, when the students were making and involved in their projects and they just started talking about politics and the depth and the frequency of that back and forth reciprocity and conversation for me as a researcher that researches autism was really, really nice to see. Mm -hmm. There's a, there's a lot there that I want to come back to. So, so, um, but Wendy, I'm going to ask you, um, maybe you can, uh, I, I feel like we need to fill in a little bit, starting with, um, for folks who don't, I think people tend to know, um, the word autism. I've found in my conversations that um, they, they, beyond that, uh, they tend to know that uh, it is a matter of cognition, that sometimes it goes with other things. Um, they tend to not really get it when, when you say things like social, um, you know, there was a time when the, the DSM sort of framed it as a social disorder. Um, People don't tend to get what that means, uh, aside from uh, not liking to make eye contact. Um, can you back us up a little bit? What is autism? And, um, and why is this an important intersection between uh, autism and what we're talking about now, which we'll call maker education just for the, I know the folks who have been listening to this show sort of know that language well. Um, gosh, I don't know if I'm the best person to say what autism is, because I'll just say that I'm a parent of a child with autism. And I've just been thinking about this recently, that I think people, they came up with the term autism because they thought that these were people who were really self-absorbed and not aware of others, couldn't communicate well. And the one thing that they always would say when you read the historical literature, that they lacked empathy, hmm. which couldn't be further from the truth. And the more we know about people with autism, and certainly the more I know about my own son, there couldn't be a more empathetic person uh, in the world, really. Mm -hmm. Or a person who wants to interact more with other people yeah. and loves interacting with other people, has a million questions. Um, the only thing that makes him seem different is that he doesn't necessarily understand um, how to do the things that you and I do to bring other people into his world um, instead of just assuming that everyone must be interested in the things that he's interested mm -hmm. in. Um, and it's funny, we, Christy was just talking about how important interests are in this project, and that was really what made me um, want to get involved in combining um, making with students on the autism spectrum because the literature on making and, and interest-driven education is really about how do you draw on student interests to get them interested in things like STEM. Mm -hmm. 
Whereas when you have kids on the autism spectrum, very often they're already interested in a deep way in certain things. Some of them might be STEM topics, some of them might be transportation, some might be art, some might be music, things like that. But this is a group that already comes with a level of excitement and interest and passion often from a very young age. in things that many educators would love and dream of having their typically developing students be involved in. So it just seemed as though there there was a there was had to be a a, a good intersection between this drive towards making education more interest driven and connecting with kids who have very strong and pervasive interests that they want to pursue and that education, typical education settings, never allow them to pursue. So let's come back to something. You said the term uh, inclusion, Christy. So I'm curious for you just to share um, what school has been like for your son and both the the good and and the challenges um, you mentioned earlier that oftentimes inclusion settings first I want to define inclusion um, we're talking about environments where uh, students that are are typically sort of on a, an IEP or an individualized education plan or um, are considered sort of special ed in in using uh, those terms uh, are included in a classroom with typically developing peers. Uh, and the idea is whether uh, the class is being co-taught or specialists are sort of pushing into the classroom. It can happen in a lot of different ways. But the idea is that um, inclusion is um, a, a better way to sort of raise all ships, if that's an okay uh, metaphor. So, um, so what was school like for your son? And um, and and then I want to get to some of the our, the hypotheses about why maker education was sort of um, an, an important way to fill gaps. Or I should say, I want to rephrase: an important way to realize potential we haven't yet in um, in structured school settings. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. School is very challenging for my son. Um, I think the typical structures that he has to be engaged in, think just even things like sitting for the day is very hard for him. Um, and other, you know, it's very typical for kids on the spectrum. Um, having to focus on something that he doesn't care about. Of course, none of us like to do that, Mm -hmm. but it's really a struggle for him. And not just him, but lots of kids on the spectrum. Um, Not being able to pursue things that he wants to pursue more once he actually finally gets excited about things is also very difficult. Um, It's that normal structure of education, um, even at the elementary school level, where you have to do a certain amount of things for a certain amount of time, 
and there's a certain thing that everyone is supposed to understand is just doesn't make sense to someone who is deeply, deeply driven by his own curiosity about the world. Um, and it just seemed as though there needed to be some other outlet for him to pursue and for other kids like him to pursue, um, which would take those that curiosity and make it a strength, have it be the thing that actually allows them to be successful in that pursuit as opposed to um, being a problem. And I have to say, in this program, that is in many ways something that we've been surprised by because there hasn't been as much of a need for this, what we put in the proposal as the autism supports for the, for the activities. And I think it's because this really is the sort of um, environment in which they thrive. They get to pursue things that they actually are interested in doing. Things can go in different directions. They don't have to complete what other people tell them they have to do in 40 minutes. They can take longer. They can change their minds. Mm -hmm. um, and it just seems as though they're really, most of the kids that are in this program are really thriving. I mean, there is a certain level of um, chaos in some of the, <laughs> the classes, uh, or I shouldn't say the classes, in the, um, the programs um, that the kids have to get accustomed to because that can be one thing that is challenging. But and there hasn't really been that big of a problem um, with that, even with you know having lots of materials and some um, lack of structure. I think the kids are actually enjoying the fact that they are able to make their own choices and take the time that they need to do things instead of having to fit what they're doing into the normal you know, school day structure. Hmm. Um, one, one of the, uh, we're in an awesome, beautiful uh, office in, that overlooks Washington Square Park. And I'm just going to warn uh, folks who are picking it up, the amazing Washington Square Park jazz that's come, that's uh, sort of underlaying this conversation, which I find delightful. <laughs> Feels like we're on an elevator. Um, I really, it, it's nice. Um, one of the things that interests me so much about this project is that, it, first off, the thing you said about, um, about, you know, the little bit of chaos uh, that ensues uh, with a sort of maker education frame uh, is something I've heard over and over from educators in uh, classrooms or environments filled with uh, typically developing students. So, um, so that's definitely a consistent uh, regardless. One of the things that interests me so much in this project is that um, I think that there's kind of a first principle in in kind of um, 
nerdy to use nerdy uh sort of Silicon Valley speak, there's a first principle that's broken in K-12 education, which is that the idea that um, we're going to sort of uh, spread this layer of knowledge across all these students. And then what we've been sort of thinking about and researching for decades is how students then generalize that knowledge onto new environments. And, And so the idea is that everybody just tolerate the way I put it for now and I'm going to give you all this stuff and then it's going to get interesting when you apply it to the area that you care about. Um, And the reason I think it's a broken first principle is that um, I didn't learn that way either. Um, It was very hard out of context to learn things like math for me. Um, And so I would imagine that part of the hypothesis here is that there's a level of efficacy when you start with um, where the student is and where their where their uh, passion is, and and go from there, and layer and add dimension from there, um, and and you guys are nodding, uh, that fascinates me. So I'm I'm curious to hear um, what you found, uh, and and Christy, maybe you can talk a little bit about um, that and other of the sort of hypotheses that. Um, when you saw when early on when you were thinking about writing this proposal, what excited you the most about what the possibilities were? Um, that's a good question. I think that uh, around kind of meeting students where they are and going with their interest, we do that in our program now. So what interests me interested me in the program meeting the ASD Nest uh, project that we have because what we do, for example, is we take a, a lot of our students are interested in the subway. Right? It's a well-known, high-interest area, especially for our younger students and even as they get older. And so our program, I think, is um, a little different in that we embrace those. You know, there's a lot of, you know, it, because the DSM has pathologized it as a restricted and repetitive interest, which is real negative language if you think about yeah. it, versus a passion. You know, since it's a, framed in the negative, many um, students go to school, like Wendy said, where you can't talk about it, you can't explore it, you have this incredible natural curiosity, but we need to kind of shut that down in order for you to learn math. We don't do that. We embrace it. And we say, all right, if you're having difficulty learning math and you're interested in the subway system, we're going to use subway cars. We're going to do whatever we can with the one, two, three, mm-hmm. four, five, six, seven train um, in order to, you know, kind of have you at hello. Like, I know you're interested in this, so yeah. let's use it. So that was a hypothesis. And I think one of the reasons why I was very interested in this project when we wrote the proposal is that this proposal really front and center put interests first and said, you know, we're going to go with these student interests and then we're going to look at how that impacts um, their interest in STEM education, their STEM knowledge, their self-efficacy. We're looking at it socially. I have a PhD student that's doing some work around the social interactions. So all of those hypotheses where the, the center of it is that normalizing and celebrating interest versus viewing it from a more pathological lens was the thing that excited me the most about this project. So Mm. that I think, um, since we, since I know that we already use them, so operationalizing it for this NSF proposal was really exciting. Yeah. Um, and it would seem like the part of the problem, um, part of the problem when you depress 
<clears throat> when you work from a, a system that, um, as a sort of reflex, depresses the curiosity and passion, um, especially when you're you're working with certain populations, I would imagine that then you have serious problems when, if the reflex is is depressing the curiosity, uh, when it comes to conversations later on about um, culture and sexuality and um, all the things that everyone along the way needs to encounter and and um, uh, have a process for figuring out. Um, that reflex gets, uh, I would imagine, to be uh, really hard because then all of a sudden you get to a point in a, a student's development where you're saying, no, now you can be curious and let's have a conversation about it. You know, it's interesting that you, you, you frame it that way because we have a program here at NYU called NYU Connections and we support our autistic students that get into NYU. And I just did a focus group with them a couple weeks ago. And in general, one of the things that many of the students talked about, they love finally getting to a place where it's like, okay, you're here, mm -hmm. go be curious. Yeah. But they also talked about, they've learned so well that they, 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 in order to kind of make it and pass, if you will, they can't go so far with their interests. They mm. can't, they, because it's always been viewed as a no, negative thing. Yeah. So how do I, how do I then go from a system that says, you know, you're not going to have friends, you're not going to do that, you know, and all these, uh, you're not, you're not to, okay, now be who you are. Yeah. And it's, it's just not a coat they've been wearing very long. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons why um, we were very interested in really moving this far back into middle school and even earlier to really get kids that that are um, autistic to really say no this is actually a strength of yours this is a good thing your natural curiosity is what's going to take you where you want to go yeah. it's going to be difficult in systems that don't support that right yep. Yep. it's going to be very difficult in systems that really um, aren't amenable to those those ideas you yeah. know? but it's hard we've, we've done a we did a research project where we surveyed adults around their interest and you know they're not negative they're associated with very positive balance and uh, you know anxiety reducing we know that when kids engage in their interest a lot of our kids have sensory sensitivities and it reduces the impact of those sensory sensitivities now what what does I just want to not engaging in interest. Yeah. So when you're engaged in a, in a preferred interest, mm -hmm. you, it actually reduces some of the sensory yeah. sensitivities, like being distracted by the jazz sure. in the park or something, you know, and so it's a powerful force yet. How do we manage that? And there is some compromise. There is some management. And I think one of the things that um, we find is that once kids know that you value and find their interests very important as a part of who they are versus yet another person that says, no, you can't talk about that. Mm. Then there's room for compromise and negotiation in different spaces because they're, they're, they're being brought along with you. They're not like, you know, no trains with a red X through it. Mm. You know, they're really, they're really recognized as something that as a vehicle for how you learn, who you are, how you view the world. So it becomes a very different um, way and a powerful way to support that inclusion. You know, and how then do you manage? Well, not everyone is as interested as I am in this topic. You know, so how do you manage that, and how do you scaffold that for the student, mm. so that it becomes around kind of a, a common set of principles around curiosity, around exploration, where everyone can come to the table and begin to talk about what they're really interested in. Yeah, 
we work with our kids and it, it takes a while in kindergarten for example we have a lot of kids that are very interested in dinosaurs and you know we talk about in circle time where you have to ask someone else a question about what they're interested in and our kids tend to start out well what's your favorite dinosaur as mm-hmm. the question right you know <laughs> even like, if the other child it, exactly but then that's a process right but you can talk about dinosaurs if you're interested but everyone gets to talk about what they're interested in yeah. so it really does help bring everyone into the center and that's what we want to do with a lot of our our kids that are um, on the spectrum is how do we bring them from the margins to the center? Mm. You know, just like we're bringing everyone else to the center. You know, how do we really help kids that feel marginalized by the fundamental nature of who we are, who they are, to really feel like they belong in that classroom? The teachers get it. No one's going to say, "Hey, don't talk about trains." Mm-hmm. We don't do that. And how do we then move that? beyond what we're doing in the nest program and this nsf project and the ideas project how do we really get those ideas out because those are powerful ideas yeah so as you're as you're talking i'm thinking about uh, um uh funny like i'm, I'm thinking about a circumstance where everybody can close their eyes as they're listening <laughs> and think about the moment where a, a teacher approached um, Einstein or, uh, you know, and said like, enough with the math. <laughs> I want you to concentrate on the literature or, um, Maya Angelou and said, uh, you know, with the language and the poetry enough, let's get to whatever. Um, it, it's an absurd idea. Um, so you would think that as a system, we would sort of appreciate that, 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 um, that sort of uh, expertise and mastery can be fostered um, at a very early stage and um, not by depressing questions and curiosity, mm-hmm. but by sort of um, helping figure out how you, how you layer onto that. Um, so that's not a question, but um, that's what was going through my mind. So but I do have a comment about that because yeah, I, I, I do think I do think that we do do that for typically developing kids. Yeah. You know, we have um, and, and the public schools and the AP exam. They're, they're actually there's really good examples of where we do that. And yeah. I really am a strong supporter of public schools because I, again, with autism, really think that reduces the disparity between the have and have nots with autism and autism best practices. So for me, we've got to make these public schools the best for these kids. And I think that we do it. We do it with typically developing kids. We say, oh, you're really interested in history, and they get connected with the teachers, and they go to AP classes. I think the issue is this, this, this fundamental um, paradigm shift that has to happen with uh, neurodiverse learners, mm-hmm. where you have to really look at the, there's so many different ways of learning. And if I have students with high interest areas, the DSM in my head is made that a diagnostic criteria. So when we think diagnostic criteria, we think, okay, that's something that is a core deficit. Mm -hmm. So how do we frame that narrative differently and change that narrative around really know, yes, it is a feature of autism. We know that, you know, our autistic students have these, these very focused interests, but how do we then, um, really decide how we're going to frame that because how you frame it is going to be is going to produce a very different outcome so if we frame it like we frame it for the typically developing students and say hey this is a this is an area where i can facilitate learning yeah or if i frame it as hey this is an area that i have to control 
and I have to stop them talking about it. Your outcomes are going to be dramatically different. If I frame it as an area that has to be reduced, I'm going to have reward systems when you don't talk about it, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to have build a whole host of programming around you not talking about the thing you love. Mm-hmm. You know, which is absurd. Like you said, it's just absurd. Yeah. Versus if I frame it as, wow, this is a potential great thing to use. Yeah. Your outcomes are going to be limitless in many ways for yeah. these students. So there's, there's, um, so for, as a sidebar, <clears throat> we mentioned the DSM a couple of times. It's the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of like an encyclopedia for uh, therapists and um Folks in the uh, social, psychological, uh, how many fields use the DSM? I guess everybody, researchers use the DSM. Many, yeah. uh, There's a board someplace of uh, that sort of have these conversations about what goes into the DSM. It gets updated not frequently enough, I mm-hmm. guess. Um, and it's huge. It's like... Anyone who's been to uh, graduate school for any of those professions has a DSM someplace dusty on their... uh, There it is. So, um, anyway, um, to what you said, I have so many conversations. So, because my wife and I work in education, we get a lot of our peer parents who want to talk about education. and, um, And a lot, there's so much fear when uh even at very early stages when um uh they get a note from a teacher that says you know we want to talk about putting your student on an iep an individualized education plan which i think um typically parents sort of know as a label for special ed um and you know, I wish I have a, a daughter who we're, we're working on these issues right now. She's she's at an early stage, been sort of diagnosed with um, a, a form of dyslexia, and we're working on early um, supports for that. Um, but for my wife and I, hearing that she might get an IEP, you know, there's there's a joke in uh, nerdy software uh, culture where, you know, when you're when you're uh, product is missing something. It's it's not a bug. It's a feature, right? Um, and this is what you're you're saying. And and when parents, um, you know, come to us and and say things like, you know, they're talking about an IEP. I don't know. That seems really. And to me, it's like that's not a bug. Like that's a feature, and it'll be the best thing at an early, um, especially at an early stage, that your son or daughter. Um, could have. Uh, it means a whole bunch of special supports. It means tailoring. Uh, in in my personal opinion, everyone uh, everyone should be on an IEP. And this is where um, I th- it, it should be um, just how education works. Um, so anyway, Wendy, you were about to jump in and say yeah, something. Yeah. Well, that is something that I wanted to mention about with this program specifically because um, something we really need to emphasize is that it's not just a maker program for kids on the spectrum. It's a program that has been developed, co-designed with the NEST program and the NEST teachers. And 
I think that's something that we don't want to forget. We didn't think about this being something that wasn't connected to the support and services that students are getting through the NEST program mm. at their schools. And I think it's the, the contributions that the teachers have made to the redesign of what came from the New York Hall of Science, the MAKER program, which is an excellent MAKER program that was created by New York Hall of Science, but has then been integrated into schools in informal spaces during lunchtime and after school. So it's not, it's not going into schools um, during formal education. Um, but they have really helped us to create something that works for students in inclusion programs because they are skilled inclusion teachers. Mm. Um, and the, the ways that it has been changed aren't just about supporting students on the spectrum, although that's certainly part of it. Um, but it's also about how it can work, how an informal program that's really, you know, designed to be in a makerspace can actually work in schools to, um, you know, be realistic, be doable, and also be um, something that has helped those teachers understand their students mm -hmm. better because they get to see them in this more relaxed and informal environment. Yeah, it, That's one of the things that has been most exciting that I've heard from teachers about this program is that they're seeing their kids in a different way because they get to spend this extra time with them. They get to see them do things that they're not able to do during class time. So I just wanted to make sure that that was, it's not just about making being a good thing for kids on the spectrum. It's, it's having a maker program in schools that have this inclusion program that's been co-designed by teachers who know the kids, who know their interests, who know what supports they get during the school day mm -hmm. and what they might need in addition in these informal yeah. um, times. Yeah. Um, and then take what they're learning about their kids back into the classroom because now they know, oh, you know, maybe I can follow up with what he did in the class uh, or yeah. what he did in the MAGER program in class. Yeah. Um, but, you know, certain things like I've seen kids get very, very frustrated at certain times, as you do when you're doing a design and um, making and iterating and things like that. Um, and these teachers are really familiar with the students and they're really skilled in understanding how to de-escalate that frustration yeah. in a way that's really productive and helps them not just um, get over it, but learn how to cope better the next time yeah. with those frustrations that they're going to experience and lets them be frustrated for a little bit. Yeah. You know, because if they're not, that's part of what this program is about is helping them learn to cope with the things that you know, the real world is going to throw at them if they go into these kinds of careers. Yeah. So can, can we do just very briefly the sort of nuts and bolts of, uh, of how it works? Um, and I know this was, was laid out as a uh, piece of research, and I think it's uh, worthwhile to talk about that it's being funded in its current uh, form by the National Science Foundation. Um, 
a federal program that uh, everyone should uh, go look up on the internet and then find a way to um, speak up about uh, continuing funding for. Um, Specifically, it's the the iTest program. Uh, it stands for the Innovative Technology Experiences for yes. Students and Teachers. iTest. Yes. Excellent program. Linga. And, um, and just um, that program is specifically geared towards um, supporting students and teachers in um, workforce uh, development. Mm-hmm. So helping prepare the STEM workforce. Yeah. So, so uh, when you laid out the research, sort of uh, tell me how it's working right now. Um, students are from how many, like how many students are we talking about? What does it look like? Um, that sort of thing. So the program is in three schools. It's uh, all middle schools and that are in the NEST program Mm -hmm. um, in New York City. Um, It's, there are two to four teachers in each school that are running the program. It's being done in after school in two of the schools and during lunchtime clubs in one of the schools. There are about 15 kids in each of the programs um, in the next year, they're going to we're going to have two programs per year, so it will probably be around twenty four to thirty kids in each school. Mm. But there might be actually some overlap, yeah, because um, a lot of the kids want to take it again, yeah. Um, and this is the third year of a three year program. We've been piloting it. The first year we had a New York Hall of Science maker educator run the program, the 3D design and fabrication program in the schools, in all three schools. And the teachers observed and helped out, and some uh, graduate students from New York University's Tandon School of Engineering were part of that as well. And then over the summer, um, based on that initial implementation, the team revised the uh, what the New York Hall of Science curriculum was to make it more feasible in schools by non-maker professionals. Yeah. You know, these the teachers. Um, and then this year, the teachers have really taken on the program and implemented themselves with the uh, Tandon School of Engineering graduate students helping them. Uh, and then in the next year, um, they're going to run it all by themselves. And we're going to be doing things like measuring um, whether the program is having an impact on students' STEM career interests and self-efficacy, their understanding of the engineering design process and the social interaction and um, initiation that Christy is looking at as well. Yeah. So, so um, Christy, when... At the end of this year, you're going to write a report to the NSF that talks about all kinds of stuff. But one of the things you're going to talk about, uh, you get a little bit of real estate to talk about. Um, I'd assume you'll you'll put some great examples in there of um, exciting successes and places where you're seeing potential. Um, can you give us some of examples of projects that are happening or interactions that you're seeing with students that 
that uh, are that are happening at these project sites um, with students that uh, illustrate um, what the potential of this project is? You know, I think when, when we look at successes of this program, I think actually there's a couple different levels of successes. I yeah. think I think there's a level of, um, and even though we're not measuring this specifically, I think a big success this year has been the teachers really taking ownership and taking over the, the project, you know, having observed what was last year, you know, the professionals from NISI, that have done maker education for years, deliver a program that was outstanding and having the teachers and, and set, you know, the teachers would hang back and, and watch. And I think a lot of them had some anxiety about doing it more and being more front and center the second year, but seeing that happen. And I observed at a school where I saw um, two teachers that really looked like just old pros at doing this maker education. They were working on, I think, circuits at the time. Mm. And and one is a special ed teacher, not a science teacher, you know, and the other is a, was a science teacher. But watching uh, the two of them work together and them take leads at different times and really be comfortable with what they were doing um, as a kind of a secondary success. You know, I think that the model and how the materials were developed by the NYU engineering students and how we frame them in a really kind of concrete way for the lesson plans and really spoke to kind of teachers' understanding of lesson plans um, was a great success. I was actually shocked um, at how well and at with such ease they were with the materials and the actual things that in the first year, I think some of them honestly were a little terrified. Mm. You know, how I'm not a science teacher. How am I going to how am I going to do this? How am I going to be able to understand this and then teach it to others. So that I think was absolutely one of the things I think about as a success that I saw this this year. And then um, in addition, the just the students really engaging at a high level with each other, with their projects, the interests of their projects, the diversity of their projects. Um, I think Wendy can talk about this. She's seen it. I haven't seen it. This is at another school. But we have a kid that's building a computer, um, and so it, it's it's very it's very interesting to me just how it's taken off both at the teacher level and at the student level, and the students wanting to continue in this club and wanting to be be there again, and just the the interaction and the support that the that the students give. I happened to be there observing when we were videotaping students for the social piece, and you know there were a table of four students all all boys and three of the students were our ASDNS students one was a, a typical typical was it was a non-autistic student and um, the conversations they were having and one saying to each other oh your idea is not stupid and the other one saying oh yes it is it's like no it's not you know, and just them going through mm. this 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 what sixth seventh eighth grade boys do in a way that was very different when i first started here in 2007 and i observed a classroom and you had the the autistic students off on a table by themselves with a special ed teacher making sure they focused on their work Mm. and all the other tables were middle school students that were chatting while they were working You know, and seeing that happen at this level where they're all just chatting while they're working and joking and Mm. you know um actually being very funny and humorous with each other it was really was i think to me stands out hmm. when did you have uh, examples from the project that you've you've loved to see um well i'll 
tell you about the the one of the boys, um, the one who's making the computer now, is a boy who um, last year was also in the program and was a kid who really had a hard time in, in class. He just he's a very confident kid, um, but that confidence was often challenged <laughs> in classes because. He wasn't able to talk about what he was interested in and and what he felt very knowledgeable knowledgeable about, and so this program has really given him the opportunity to just feel very masterful. I think he's certainly um, uh, he has a couple of other kids. Uh, that are not nest students who are just sort of his groupies <laughs> in mm-hmm. a way um, really value his input and are always asking for his advice and he's very very happy to offer it <laughs> um, but I just feel as though this program has allowed him to be the person that he thought he was mm. which is and he's made things like his own speakers by soldering electronics to uh, I mean he looks up things on the internet so mm. he can always be pushing himself this year when they had to do the um, what's called the vibrobots where they take a little motor mm-hmm. and then they make uh, robots with paper plates and cups and stick and popsicle sticks he couldn't be that wasn't enough for him to do the the typical robot. He wanted to make a helicopter, mm. and he made a helicopter with two motors on either side. I mean, it didn't really fly, but it did work with the two motors that he was able to run with one battery. I mean, he's just really um, been thriving in, in the club. Um, and then also just having the teachers say how much they're, they're able to... Um, to see what the kids are capable of and see their students in a different light because you know and this kid is an example and then and and there's another um child in another one of the classes who um another one of the schools who are pretty challenging kids and i think in within the classes especially for the academic teachers and not the nest teachers they um really struggle with those kids because they're trying to teach them things that they don't necessarily want to know all the time. And now seeing them in this different light has given Mm. them a new sense of who they are as people. The other thing I'll say is, you know, for getting the teachers um, confident in doing making as opposed to instruction. Mm. Um, Very early on in, I guess, November, um, when the one of the first programs or first activities that the teachers did um, was the pa- doing paper circuits, which yeah. is always challenging and always fails <laughs> because that copper tape is not great. Um, and seeing the um, how the teachers were able to handle the failures that the students were dealing with with such grace um, and composure and turn around to the engineering design process diagram that our engineering students have made and pointing to the iteration part of it and saying, look, Mm. this is great. 
you failed. Mm -hmm. Now you can try something new. And the kids sort of, their eyes lighting up and thinking, oh, good. I get to try it again. And it, it really worked having that, um, having the materials and having that mindset really enabled the teachers to turn those challenges and frustrations into a positive experience hmm. for the students. So, and that was really exciting to see for the students' sake, but also that the teachers had figured out how to be excited about those moments as and not feel like they might in a normal classroom that oh no things aren't working out like they're supposed to yeah um it's awesome i want to uh i want to read the final report and and uh and hear more about about it so so um The NSF talks a lot about, uh, among grantees, um, I'm one on, on different projects, and uh, one of the ways that Wendy and I know each other is is through that work. Um, uh, we talk a lot about uh, ideas like broadening participation, and when we talk about broadening participation in STEM, um, Often, uh, most often, we're talking about the inclusion of um, young people who are coming out of communities that are under-resourced or, um, uh, you know, socioeconomic background. Um, and if it gets mentioned, uh, we're talking about the differently abled um, as a, as kind of a footnote. And I think that one of the really important things about your project is that when we talk about broadening participation, um, we really need to be talking about all, uh, learners. And, um, I wonder if, if you can talk about that, if there's a, a goal for this project related to broadening participation and just sort of, um, telling the story about why the stakes are so high that, that, inclusion means all students um what is that i couldn't agree with you more i think one of the things that i found as part of this project is when we went to the i test pi summit actually our first year um we had met with i had we had gone and met on uh, with senators and congressmen staff to you know let them know about the project and everything and i sat on a panel and one of the things that to tell the other i test uh i test pis about our experience. And one of the things that I kept hearing at NSF as well was that this idea of broadening participation and what was consistently mentioned were underrepresented groups, but primarily uh, girls in STEM, uh, minority, disadvantaged, et cetera. And there was very little talk about disability or um, a, the different kind of learner. And one of the things I said when I was up on this panel, because I felt like, okay, I'm up here, I have somewhat of a platform, and all I do is working with individuals that learn differently. But we face this here, too, when we think about diversity, the word diversity, too. We don't think about disability or neurodiversity. We, we, we really are missing out on a huge portion of the population that really... Um, 
has so much capability in in this area and bringing and broadening their participation, creating access um, in ways that have not been done before or not been intentional. You know, uh, and I think that even at you know most universities, uh, places of employment, when they talk about diversity, the disability or the differently abled or you know I tend to use the word disability. A lot of the disability advocates like just disability. Mm-hmm. We're disabled. Yeah, uh, I have a disability. Um, so I think that by doing that and by saying no, this is part of that diversity. This is part of the equity. This is part of really broadening uh, participation, whether it's in the workforce, whether it's in schools and community settings. Um, and that's happening. I actually see that happening over my course as an occupational therapist these last 30 years. I see diversity meaning disability more and more. We have a long way to go. And I challenge everyone that's at discussions around diversity to be the voice that talks about disability in those settings and to be the voice that says um, we've got to talk about different ways of learning as well and I think the more we do that um, there would be more and more projects like this actually that really focus on all types of uh, participation and all types of learners participating in a very broad way I also just want to add that it's interesting that you asked that because in the proposal originally um, we drew on the work of my other co-PI, who's uh, Jennifer Yu at SRI mm. International, um, and the work that she's done with her colleagues there um, looking at the outcomes for students with disabilities, particularly with autism, um, is really jaw-dropping. Um, about 80% of adults on the autism spectrum are not employed or not fully employed. And that's just crazy. Mm. Um, There's so much potential among this group of um, people that for them not to be able to go into full employment is, is a tragedy, you know, Um, and there's no need for it. That's why a program like this or other programs that, Christie's involved in at um, NYU, um, and we're just starting to hear about more and more programs, I think, in Microsoft and SAP and some software engineering firms and things like that, um, bringing people um, on the spectrum into into employment is, is just absolutely essential, just, you know, from a human development perspective and from an economic perspective. There's no reason why 80% of a huge population should not be able to be employed. And I, I think, too, if, if, if we as a society broaden participation, it no longer becomes that in order for that person to get a job, he has to look, act, and think like me. You know, so the traditional job interview of that social job interview is mm. a fallacy and really sets a lot of these individuals up for failure. So how are we looking at this whole um, process where if they've been participating in so much more all throughout their educational system, their college careers, um, if we're working with potential employers, if we're working with uh, employers that come and recruit students from universities, you know, so that it's not about, you know, you can only be successful if you look, think, and act like me, hmm. you know, which is really horrible if you think about it. You know, we don't ask someone that is blind to see more like me. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and we don't ask someone that's got cerebral palsy to walk more like me. But for autism, we're constantly asking that individual to act more like me. And, and, and that's just wrong. It's just wrong. And I think by validating um, the, the strengths that these individuals have and the abilities, and then also the challenges, you know, and working with those challenges as well, but really doing it in a way that does not give the message, you must be changed yeah. or you must be different in order to be successful. Yeah. You know, it's society and that has to do a lot of the changing around yeah. these issues or else we're going to miss out on an incredible, incredible group of individuals that have, like Wendy said, the talent and the ability, but may just need some different supports than we're used to given. Yeah. If everybody uh, who hasn't had this issue closes their eyes and thinks about the one thing that makes them um, feel least capable, um, that makes them most self-conscious and then picture that being, uh, all that people see all the time. Um, you get a sense like you can't understand it, but, but you can start to get a sense of what we're talking about, um, for the young person who is seen as autistic and, and that's it. And, and the last thing, one of the one of the places I want to just sort of land um, for now, and I hope we can have more conversation um, in the future, is I, I think that there are people listening right now who will think um, this all sounds great, but the so what like the the so what is like so so what like they're going to get um, jobs like uh, manning robots or um, what are we talking about and. Um, I, I just want to talk about that for a second because this is not um, this is not a job training program. Um, it's about a, a doorway to learning through maker education for young people with autism. Um, and I, I want to come back to where we started, which is about the agency piece. I think that I've heard a lot of conversation over the years where, um, you know, or, written, or read articles where um, people say, you know, isn't that great? This software company is, um, you know, letting this um, group of, of uh, people with autism do software testing. And it's the idea is kind of like, oh, we're going to put put this person into a job that's super procedural and, and is hard to get wrong and is great if you focus well. Um, um, and there's something as broken about that as it is for when we talk about, um, uh, you know, young people from the South Bronx, um, you know, isn't it great for them, um, you know, in, in a school that is, is typically, uh, underserved or, or they've been labeled as underperforming, uh, like let's, let's get them jobs in, um, an area where they have no agency, um, and they're not doing a thing that they're passionate about or good at, but wouldn't it be great that um, they're moving along? And what we know from decades and decades of research is that it doesn't, in that context, it doesn't break the cycle of poverty when we uh, treat sort of quote-unquote job training that way. And I think what we know at this stage in the research that you guys are doing is that um, it, it's also not a game-changer to, to drop. These are all individuals. And so every young person with autism is not going to be great at doing your software testing. Um, 
So where I wanted to end up is just bringing it back to the point that this is about agency and um, helping helping people to understand. Um, yes, this is this is important to the National Science Foundation as um, from a, a sort of career development perspective. But um, I wonder if you'll just talk about how important agency is uh, to a person's ability to develop a career pathway. You know, when you're talking, uh, it so has driven me back to this parallel with inclusion and this idea that w around inclusion, there used to be a mindset of, well, if the student earns his way, yeah. he's got to earn his way into this inclusive classroom and he's got to demonstrate this, this. And then it's nice that we let him in. Mm -hmm. We'll open the door and let him in into this inclusive class. And aren't we good? And we pat ourselves on the back right. versus everyone belongs in an inclusive environment. And if I'm in an inclusive environment, I, by the fact that I'm validated, that I belong there, am developing agency to make decisions and choices and really begin those steps of self-determination in ways that are very powerful. And it's not that I have to earn my right, I have to earn my way into that classroom. It's like, I belong there. Mm -hmm. So how am I going to work within an inclusive environment in order to be successful? Yeah. And so as you were talking, it was so parallel um, to these to these programs that you were mentioning about the South Bronx, et cetera. And I think that that's the thing. You know, this program is not necessarily it's not a job training program. We're not making everyone into um, engineers, you know, that are that are going to be involved in in the maker movement. But I think what this program does is really let these kids know that A, that their skills and abilities are valued and they, it gives them a space to explore those skills and abilities in ways that, you know, the formal education may not. Um, although I think we are doing a better job at that with these students. But it also, it also really creates an environment where they're able to fail, then be successful, then fail, then be successful again and mm -hmm. again. And for a lot of our students, that's a difficult process. You know, they, they have in their mind how it should be and it should be perfect. And we know life is chaotic. Life is messy. And I think the soft skills, I hate that term, but the, the soft skills they learn in a club like this um, really, to me, really speak to their development as a more self-determined um, student and potential employer, employee. Yeah. And potential employer, and potential let's just employer. say. Because, <laughs> you know, this program is called Ideas, Inventing, Designing, and Engineering on the Autism Spectrum, with the idea being it's not just engineering, it's not just making, they're inventing, they're designing, they're learning skills that will help them develop um, into to be able to do whatever they want in the future. It's not just about learning how to find bugs in the software or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, and to be honest, all the kids that I've met, the range of of students that are in this program, uh, there is an abundance of creativity and in art, in game design, in, you know, coming up with ideas for you know robots coming up with ideas for for you know just so many different things that it's not as though any I wouldn't imagine any of these students becoming um, software engineers necessarily they 
they've got so many other ideas yeah. about things that they want to do. Um, one of them is obsessed with the CIA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they're going to go on and do amazing things. And it's I, I think doing a program like this is really, um, hopefully, something that'll get them to just be able to interact with other students, other kids in ways that they feel confident, giving them the opportunity to, you know, talk about what they actually are interested in, what they want to do and feel like experts Mm -hmm. because they're treated like experts when they're, you know, especially when they, they do the program a second time. I've seen them really turn around and, and help other kids, um, they're the ones that know how to do the 3D printing. They're the ones that know how to use the software, the Tinkercad software, which is what they use to do the 3D printing. Um, you know, so it's, that's the thing that they're really learning. It's not about anything technical so much as just learning to feel confident, feel like they can interact with other kids, and and just gain the the, the you know kind of self-efficacy that they can be skillful at their, you know, in their inventions and in their designs. Yeah. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's the difference between a, a program that, uh, where, uh, you know, it's the difference between debugging or, or, uh, being a fixer of your computer, a, a service, which is a, a wonderful profession if you're into that, um, but it's the difference between that and uh, and being the, the you know and inventing it or mm-hmm. um, uh, figuring out how we solve some of the. My interest is uh, it, you know when we talk about inclusion in the context of the National Science Foundation, um, we need every similarly and differently minded person on the planet to work on the problems of this planet. So um, so the idea that we keep anyone from solving uh or or being supported to build the skills they need to help solve and um and grow uh humankind that is absurd to me my utopian vision is that in any industry in any organization that's trying to solve problems from the nonprofit to the governmental sector you have teams of that represent neurodiversity because we need all kinds of minds for these problems. These are not simple problems we're facing. And the way I think is going to be the different, different than the way you think. That's going to be different than the way that a young autistic adult that's been thinking about the climate since he was two years old yep. is going to be different. You know, So how do we really create um, more of these neurodiversity teams in every sector, yep. not just the tech sector, but really every aspect so that these it truly and effectively broadens the participation that you're talking about? Yep. My son doesn't think out of the box. He doesn't even know there's a box. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so his ideas are just out you know, out there. And I, I see that also in the kids that are in this program. I mean, not all the time. Sometimes they're like extremely excellent in like the guy that's making the, the computer. Yeah. 
but sometimes I just things that I, you would never think of. And back to your point about Einstein, he didn't have a box. <laughs> <laughs> right. He had a. Right. They hired a graduate student, I believe, to just follow him around and write down his mutterings because yeah, <laughs> they didn't want to miss anything. Right. Right. <laughs> you know. Guys, thank you so much for doing this. I hope it's uh, the first of more conversation to come. Thank you. Thank you. For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, an Ithaca bomber, an engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No Such Thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. This show would not be possible without the support from the good people at Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us online at mouse.org. 